Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Kieran Paul with Activist Insight and today we are chatting with Chris Kuiper who is a co-founder and managing director of Legion Partners Asset Management. Legion is a dedicated activist based in California with an emphasis on small and mid-cap companies in North America. Legion typically seeks to engage with its portfolio companies and often requests board representation at the firms it targets. In recent years, it has initiated campaigns at Papa John's International, Bed Bath & Beyond and Primo Water. Today, Chris will tell us more about his firm and the work it does. So hello Chris and welcome to the show. Firstly, what inspired you to become an activist investor? Well, I've been doing this for a long time. I got started working for uh, a family inside their family office, and I had a really broad investment mandate. So we were looking at venture capital, we were looking at real estate investments, looking at private equity, and the family was very focused on trying to find a business that we could buy and run. And we went to private equity auction after private equity auction and really didn't find anything that was too attractive at a price that the family was willing to pay. And so at the same time, I'd been looking around at small cap public companies that were near our office because we wanted to actually run the company and began to notice that there were a large number of small cap public companies that weren't trading at very high prices um, that looked a lot more attractive than the stuff that we were seeing in the private equity space. And they were readily actionable in that we could go into the market and buy the stock, you know, any given day. So after going back to the family, I got them to agree to commit enough capital that we could go into one of the companies. We bought up 20% of the stock in the company and put someone on the board and began to make moves to take the company private. And one of the other board members came forward and offered to pay a higher price than we were willing to pay. And the company uh, ended up getting sold. We sold our stock. The transaction was awesome from start to finish. I think it consumed about 18 months and was a really good return on the capital that we had um, put up. And the family came back and said, you know, is that possible to do that again? And I said, sure, but you know, why limit ourselves to Southern California? Why don't we look anywhere across the US? So that's what we began doing, really looking for small cap public companies that were undervalued anywhere across the US. I did that for that family for about seven years. And then I left and joined Roy Disney uh, and the Disney family uh, on a much larger platform. And what are you looking for in an investment? I think if you go back 20 years ago uh, when I started doing this, it was really easy to find cheap companies that were just readily observably cheap. The algorithms have really come in and I think, you know, vacuumed up a lot of those cheap undervalued shares. And so things that are just readily apparently cheap on the surface um, don't really exist as much today. So what we're really doing now to find things that are interesting are digging deep into the 10Ks, reading lots of companies. We track over 750 uh, public companies. And what we're really often looking for are things that appear on the surface to be rather ugly. So the headline metrics aren't very interesting. Might have a company that's losing money, likely has a company that you know doesn't have very good return on invested capital. And one of the things that we're noticing again and again has been kind of a recurring theme are businesses in transition where there's part of the business that's growing, uh, there's part of the business that's shrinking, 
and the combined story is fairly ugly. But when you really get in and break the thing apart, the, the thing that's growing has a great story to tell, and the thing that's shrinking oftentimes produces quite a bit of profitability, and it's just moving from one thing to the next. We have um, pretty deep sector expertise, both across technology, consumer, and industrials. And so what we're really looking for is companies that have problems that we feel like we can solve with the knowledge that we have for those industries. And we're looking for operational issues. Oftentimes we're finding companies that have done poor M&A over time. So they've either bought things that didn't make much sense or they've overpaid for things that were really good businesses. We also spend a lot of time looking at what a company is doing to reinvest beyond M&A. So what are they doing with their capital spending? Are those dollars really um, earning the return that shareholders would demand? and then looking to monetize hidden assets. So all of those things really require a deep understanding of what's going on in the company. I understand Legion often pushes for board representation at its target firms. Why is that such a common strategy? We believe that one of the places we can have the biggest impact on companies is replacing directors. It's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, Over the last two years, we've placed 19 directors across nine portfolio companies. It's a really interesting differentiator from us also as compared to other activists in that what you'll notice about the directors we're placing, it's nearly uh, always someone who's not affiliated with our firm. So it's individuals who are industry experts who can address the issues that are present at the company, but it's not Legion Partners employees usually. It's not to say that we would never join a board but we generally try and find other people to do it. And that's an important thing for our firm when we think about our investment process. So it keeps our time pretty freed up to continue to work on new ideas. It doesn't restrict our trading. And it really positions the board, in our view, for long-term success since you know our investment time horizon in most things we get into is two to three years. We'd really like to put people on boards that have a much longer time horizon than that. Our view is that you know most boards uh, of the small cap companies that we come across need upgrading. The board members oftentimes uh, haven't been in communication with shareholders. Uh, often when we talk to board members and say, when was the last time you talked to a shareholder, you'll see their eyes kind of glaze over because most of them have never actually talked to a shareholder. And most board members don't own uh, a lot of stock in the companies that they're sitting on the boards of. And they're way more focused on the fees that they're earning uh, as being a board member. And so when you're very focused on the fees that you're earning and you don't own much stock, and you don't talk to shareholders, it's hard to really have an appreciation for what the shareholder issues are or really think about the situation as as though you're a shareholder. What we find in a lot of these companies are that the boards tend to be made up of people that were friendly at one point or another with the CEO, personal relationships or prior business relationships. And you know what we do with each company we come into is really try and look at the matrix of skill sets that exist on the board and try and identify situations where people in our director database, and we have a huge director database, could really add value and bring skill sets to the board that don't currently exist. In certain situations, when we don't have somebody with the appropriate skill sets in our universe, we'll actually go out and do a search for that. And two recent examples where we did that was we were involved in a um, food distribution business. We didn't have anybody with food distribution expertise in our director database, so we went out and we did a search, actually screening through old proxies. And another uh, instance recently, we needed somebody with security software expertise that we didn't 
have uh, in our network. And we actually used LinkedIn and uh, went through a number of profiles, have made several trips to San Francisco to meet with um, security software experts to um, try and find somebody who'd be appropriate for one of our portfolio companies. And then in the October issue of Activist Insight Monthly, you talk about why you like tech companies. So what makes a great investment in this particular space? So we've found a number of interesting technology investments. We have really deep technology uh, expertise on our team, and we're constantly looking for opportunities. We're seeing technology make a big impact on a number of different industries, and it's one of those areas where we're seeing pretty good growth. A lot of these companies are strong growers. A space that's been more of a focus for us has been unified communications, which is really a a software business, and it's at the very core of what it is. It's voice over internet protocol. So what we're talking about is the switching of companies going from having a PBX in their closet to having all of their phone service uh, delivered over the internet. And it's a fast-growing market. Uh, And what we saw initially in the market was that it was small companies that were making this change because what they were able to get by switching over was a bunch of features through the software that they hadn't been able to get previously because they couldn't afford a PBX. And now what we're seeing is larger and larger companies switching over their phone systems, getting rid of the expensive PBX that they had in their closet, and going to the cloud. Um, We've made four investments across the space, and our thesis is that there needs to be a lot of industry consolidation, and we've been an active participant in that. We made an investment in a company called Shortel. We put a director on the board there. She was put on the special committee uh, that brought in JP Morgan to sell the company. The company got sold to Mitel. Uh, we made an investment in a software company called Broadsoft that was sold to Cisco. And then Mitel, which earlier had bought our Shortel uh, investment, we made an investment in that company and it got sold to a private equity firm, Searchlight. We currently own one company in the space, Vonage. Uh, it stock trades for right around $8. We think the fair market value of the company is closer to 20 bucks. Uh, we added a director at Vonage earlier this year. And to put the valuation disconnect in, in clear perspective, they um, bought a business called Nexmo, which is a really fast-growing cloud communication API business uh, back in 2016 for $250 million. That business has grown really rapidly uh, in the most recent quarter it grew almost 50% year over year. And that segment is worth what the entire company trades for uh, today. Uh, And we think ultimately that our consolidation thesis will continue to play out and Vonage will ultimately be uh, consolidated as well. We've seen things in the EDI software space. We made an investment in a company called SPS Commerce that was under earning. Uh, The top line growth had really slowed. Uh, We put three directors on the board at SPS Commerce, and those directors were able to refocus the discussion around improving profitability, given that the top line growth was slowing. So why are we spending so much money on sales and marketing if growth has slowed? And the stock price dramatically improved. It doubled over the course of just about a year. And then even in sectors that are outside of technology, we're seeing opportunities to employ the things that we've learned about from our technology investments. About a year ago, we made an investment in a company called Nutrisystem. Nutrisystem 
You've probably seen the commercials. They're everywhere on TV. It's a weight loss program. And effectively what they're doing is they're selling you food. Uh, it costs about 300 bucks a month to join as a customer. Uh, and so for just about $10 a day, they'll send you all the food you're going to eat for the month. The diet's about 1,200 calories a day. The company, and the reason why you've seen a lot of it, is it advertises predominantly on television. Uh, they spend about $200 million a year, the lion's share of which goes to buying television time. And we approached the company and said we think that there's a better way to actually go after and attract customers. And so we brought two directors to the board, uh, added those two directors, also got them to hire a nationally recognized consulting firm to help them improve the company and focus the spending more onto digital advertising, which would be a big value driver in our view. Uh, in terms of lowering the cost of acquiring customers, TV is very expensive, and we felt like there were some other channels. And so even in things where you look at that and you say it's a diet company, it's not really a technology play, we're trying to bring the things that we know about from our technology investments to play in, in other industries. And we'd love to know, what was your least successful campaign and what did you learn from it? It's always fun to talk about your worst investment. So our worst investment that we ever made was a company called Cyber that did IT systems implementations. The investment required us to run a proxy fight to get the company and their board focused on selling the business. And we needed to do that fairly immediately from the moment that we made the investment. And at the outset, I would tell you that we failed to appreciate the dire state that the company was in. It looked to us like there were some negatives, but some positives, and it looked like we had time. We had about a week from the day that we made the investment to decide whether or not we wanted to run a full-scale proxy fight. And uh, we didn't. And a year later, when we had the opportunity to do that again, uh, the company had already uh, entered bankruptcy. The three lessons that we learned from this that we think quite a bit about moving forward is we've really taken a focus on moving faster where we need to. We also generally have thought more about businesses where all of your assets, and in this case, your consultants, all go home at night and wake up in the morning and decide where they want to go to work and have really thought more about whether or not that's a place that we'd like to have a lot of our capital invested. And in our view, the business value can just escape too quickly in, in, in scenarios like that. And so we've tended to avoid companies like that from investment consideration. And then the third thing that we did is when you look at our investment, we bought way too much of the stock. So we went well over 10%. We went up to almost 15% at one point. And it was just too difficult to reverse course by, you know, since the fact that we'd owned so much of the of the company. We now have a pretty hard and fast rule that we won't go over 10% um, ownership in most companies. And so while cyber was a really uh, bad investment, the lessons that we learned from it have dramatically improved our process going forward. And in August, Activist Insight ranked the situation at Bed Bath & Beyond as one of the top 10 wildest campaigns of the 2019 proxy season. Were you as surprised as us at how things turned out? We were pretty surprised, and we've been pretty happy with how things are going. And, and just to sort of set the stage a little bit about Bed Bath & Beyond, we studied the situation for two years before we made an investment. Uh, we visited over 200 stores. We talked to 40 ex-employees. We spoke with about 100 industry executives. We fielded 16 board candidates that we ultimately ended up nominating. Uh, the nomination package that we sent into the company was over 1,600 pages. The consumer survey work that I mentioned we did before we went out and we actually interviewed 650 of their customers to get their insights. 
Massachusetts. We reviewed 15 years worth of SEC filings and 10 years worth of earnings transcripts. And then we performed a really large degree of industry benchmarking and looked at their competitors. And this is one where most of the folks out there in the industry do things slightly differently in the way that they report their financial results. And so we went through the financial statements and really tried to put everything on an apples to apples basis so we could see what was happening. What was really surprising to us as we got deeper into it was how much of an opportunity there was to improve the store uh, operations. And what's happened in the very recent past here, nine business days ago, the new CEO started. So the company's hired Mark Tritton, who was the chief merchandising officer from Target. Mark is an all-star talent, and we're really excited to have him uh, joining Bed Bath & Beyond as the CEO. And so he's now on the job, um, and I'm sure that Mark will be making uh, more changes to get his team in place. You know, when we look at Bed Bath & Beyond, and I'll talk about the fact that they have a bunch of non-core concepts, but if you just look at the thousand stores that Bed Bath & Beyond has, the core thousand stores, that generates about $500 million of EBITDA. Now, it's sort of hard to tell exactly how much EBITDA it produces because they don't do segment reporting. But in our work, when we went in and we really got into it and dug in on what was possible, what we found was that the sourcing uh, and the supply chain had tremendous opportunities to produce quite a bit more profitability. And the way that the store was set up, each store manager was in charge of ordering the inventory that was going to go into their individual stores. They would then in turn place those orders with domestically located middlemen who would then turn around and place the orders with the factories in China or whatever low-cost country internationally that they were uh, interacting with. We think that there's a big opportunity to improve the supply chain, to have the company go direct on its own in, in many cases to those factories. And, and we think by doing so, you can increase the earnings power of the business by 500 million. Some people have said as high as a billion dollars of incremental profitability. And so on a business that we think is producing about $500 million of EBITDA for those core thousand Bed Bath & Beyond stores, that's quite a bit of increase in profitability. And I don't think the market to this day understands how big that opportunity is. The second thing that I don't think the market really appreciates that took us a lot of time to appreciate as we did our work was the fact that the company had over $2 billion of non-core assets. And so these are all the other retail concepts that exist inside of Bed Bath & Beyond along with some real estate. The board has announced through several different communications that it's working hard on monetizing uh, these non-core assets. We're expecting quite soon that there's gonna be some announcements about this. So the non-core assets uh, are as follows. They have real estate that's worth about $650 million. This is owned real estate that's on their balance sheet, uh, about 4.6 million square feet. They have a business that they bought, Cost Plus World Markets. It used to be a standalone public company. They bought it for over 500 million. Uh, we think it's worth uh, less than that today. Our estimate is somewhere around 400 million. They bought a business uh, called Personalization Mall for 200 million two years ago. Uh, we think that that's worth closer to 300 million today. They own a business called Bye Bye Baby, which is 124 uh, baby superstores. And with Babies R Us going out of business, this uh, store base has been doing pretty well, comping very positively. And then they own a business called Harbor Linens, which sells sheets and towels to hotels. And we think that it might be worth $50 million. And Bye Bye Baby, I mentioned that one, that one's worth probably about $700 million. So today, as we sit here, the enterprise value of Bed Bath & Beyond is about $2.25 billion. 
And after monetizing those assets, uh, we believe that you're buying those core 1,000 Bed Bath & Beyond stores for well less than one times EBITDA. We see a tremendous amount of upside in the stock. We think that the fair value is somewhere in the range of $25 to $50. And I realize a range of $25 to $50 is a wide range. Part of the reason why the range is wide is that once uh, the company begins to monetize the non-core assets, we think the next step will be to begin to repurchase stock. And one of the, the big drivers of value will be how fast are they able to repurchase stock and what price do they end up paying for that. But what we saw here really, you know, through all of the work that we did, uh, whether it was fixing the sourcing or the non-core assets, was an opportunity uh, that we felt was so big that it really justified running a, a proxy fight. So I mentioned we ran uh, 16 directors, nominated 16 directors. After we put in our nomination, well before there was ever a vote, on a weekend, about five weeks after we nominated, seven of the existing directors, including the two co-founders, resigned over a weekend. The board replaced those seven people with five new directors that they added. Those five new directors had their first board meeting a few weeks later, and after that, the CEO uh, resigned. And quickly after that, uh, we got an outreach from the chairman, who, who's a great guy. We had some conversations about you know, whether or not there was a desire to have a settlement. We indicated that we were very interested in having a settlement, given how much change had occurred at the company. And also because we really wanted to make sure that we had directors who were in a position to be a part of the CEO search process, um, which was really important. So we agreed with the company to add four directors from the slate of 16 that we'd nominated. Two of those directors joined the CEO search committee. Two of those directors joined the business transformation committee. Now, as we sit here, Bed Bath & Beyond has one of the most diverse boards really in the U.S. And what's interesting about that is it really mirrors their customer base, um, which you don't see at a lot of companies. And the board also has really substantial retail expertise, which is something that the board previously, prior to all of the activity that went on, didn't really have as much uh, retail expertise. So we, we think we've put the board in the right spot. And as I mentioned, we couldn't be more thrilled with the new CEO. And we're looking forward to a lot more announcements and a lot more positive developments going forward. Where do you think the most plentiful opportunities for activism currently lie? We really like the small cap space. We define our universe as sub $5 billion. Uh, I mentioned before, we're tracking a number of companies. We think it's a target-rich environment. We track 750 companies on this thing we call the monitor list that we monthly go through and look at how are the stock prices for those 750 companies comparing to what our interest prices are that we've set for each one of them. And the knowledge that we've built up related to this, because I mentioned we have a lot of reading of looking at 10Ks, is really been built over 20 years. What we're seeing inside the universe, though, that makes it really interesting is that the sell side coverage on most of the companies that we look at is going down. There's just less research coverage. Research, you know, just as a business has been under pressure, and you're seeing firms move up market to larger and larger companies. And so there's just an opportunity to find things that are are less well-known down in, in our end of the market. Uh, the other thing that we find is that if you look at most of the share registers of the companies that we invest in, there tend to be a lot of ETF investors. And in those cases, those investors generally aren't doing research. Uh, it's an ETF that's just you know buying a whole sector. And then in, in a lot of cases, there are some mutual funds. And those mutual funds,
ones also don't have the time to go study the companies the way that we do because you know your average mutual fund owns 100 or 200 companies. And so our advantage is really, given the way that we construct our portfolio, it's so concentrated, we own 10 companies, and we can really spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about each one of them. We're like a private equity firm. We only tend to buy you know, one to four new investments in the course of a year, and so we can really spend an awful lot of time there. Um, but that's where we think you know, the big opportunity is, is down in that small cap space. And are there any plans for Legion we should know about? Our plans are really focusing on continuing to execute. Firm culture to us is super important. We've built a team that is hand-selected person by person. I'm really proud of uh, the people that we have at Legion. And the result of that and really trying to look at, you know, who do you want to add to the team? And are these people that you'd like to spend an awful lot of time with every day? We found that we have a really collaborative environment on our team. And that can be seen both through industry focus, where we're really trying to focus in on what are the skill sets that we have on the team and how do we play to those strengths, but also how the team works together. I mentioned, you know, Nutrisystem, and that was one where we have, you know, a consumer analyst and a technology analyst, and there was a lot of discussion around how do we evaluate that situation, what's ultimately the right answer for um, the activist agenda, and how can we put the company on a path forward. If you had a really siloed organization, that type of collaboration wouldn't be possible. The other thing that we just do as a, as a group and you know, as a firm is collaborating with company boards as well. Um, the collaboration is not just on our team, it's, it's with the investment portfolio broadly. We've found over time that collaboration with boards and management teams is the fastest way to make money. And uh, you know, it's not always possible. Some boards just want to have a fight. Uh, and in those situations, we, um, we will have a fight, I guess. So we're looking forward to a pretty exciting proxy season uh, in early 2020. We have a few targets that haven't decided to accept our uh, olive branch and take some directors. And so there's likely to be some more activity there, but um, uh, it should be pretty interesting. That was Chris Kuyper, a co-founder and managing director of Legion Partners Asset Management. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email us at press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul, and thank you for listening.